The Word of God continues on forever. Let's open up Galatians chapter 1. Paul has, if you've missed our our two introductory uh, first sermons in this series, you can catch them on YouTube, but uh, we can can recap it now that as we just sort of read for ourselves Galatians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle, so it's from the apostle Paul, not from men nor through men, right, because they were trying to say he he doesn't have his apostleship from God, but from, from some other voting council in Jerusalem. He says, but through Jesus Christ... And God the Father, who raised him from the dead. He mentioned the resurrection as if to say, the new age has begun. Stop going back to circumcision because that was the teaching of the false teachers. He says, and all the the brothers who are with me, as if to say, I'm not some solo on this. We all believe and teach this gospel, which you heretics in Galatia are are, are terrorizing the church with. He says, to the churches in Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That's how Paul starts out. Now, usually at this point in Paul's epistles, the, the structure that you know any seminary student has learned is there's a, a welcome and a hello and a how are you going, and then he goes straight into, I just praise the Lord for you. Uh, here's what's on my heart, church. Here's what I love to pray for you about. Here's what I thank God for in you. He does that in almost every single one of his epistles. This is what the Galatians get. Look at verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some, some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one who, that you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. May God bless this His inerrant word, read, preached, understood, and applied to our hearts by the power of His Holy Spirit tonight. Amen. Amen. Friends, we find ourselves in this portion of the epistle where Paul comes through with the the, the first of his, his, his active arguments against him. So far, it's just been introduction. All of the arguments that I made on the basis of the last few texts, have that was just from his salutations and his hellos. It was just uh, giving some explanation as to why he said those wonderful positive things. And that's about as dainty and lovely as it gets. Paul is immediately, he, like we said, he bypasses any thanksgiving. He doesn't say, here's what I'm glad to hear about you. Here's what God is doing that is well. Because he's, he's not, you know, therapeutic. He's not just trying to pat them on the back. He's trying to be real, what they actually need. And we recall John Chrysostom's uh, uh, a word to us a few weeks ago, that is to say that a shepherd who has nothing to say but positivity to a congregation that needs rebuke to always speak kindly is to, be, is to do a disservice to the congregation. It is to be a foul leader. Paul doesn't do that. He says, I'm not going to start out with thanksgiving Look, if you were confused about the natures of Christ, well, give some thanks and then I'll explain. If you were wondering about women in ministry at the church, I'll give some thanks and then I'll explain. But you are deserting the gospel. No introduction. No hello, how are you going? No, here's what I give thanks for. This is the one reason the church exists, to continue to glorify God for the gospel. This is the only reason the church exists, because of the reality of the gospel. So to treat this as, uh, to not go into this immediately and profoundly and strongly and vehemently and quickly would be to communicate something false. So Paul does. He goes straight into it. I am astonished. He's astonished. He's blown away. He is, he is flabbergasted. But, but, but he's not, 
it's like we, we sort of read this and go, oh yeah, the, the first generation, and, and it was fairly quickly. It was only a couple of, maybe months, maybe a couple of years tops since he had preached the gospel, planted those churches, and now they're accepting a different gospel. It was quick. But, but his astonishment, as astonishing as it is, church history tells us this is every generation. Do you ever meet, maybe it's the Catholic or the Orthodox guys, and they go, oh, well, read this church father, or read this teacher, because they were a disciple of the apostles, so we definitely know this was the apostolic teaching. Have you read Galatians or 1 Corinthians or like most of the New Testament? Direct disciples of the apostles got huge things wrong all the time, enormously wrong. So when you're debating them, you're going, oh, they believe what we believe about baptism making you alive or about the Pope having all authority. You go, I don't care. They're wrong then, they're wrong now because the apostles say so. Anyway, moving on. It's been not very long. It's been quite quick that they've turned aside. But it really, just because it's astonishing and it's rightly astonishing, doesn't mean that it's infrequent. It's not as if we should read the New Testament. Oh, this is astonishing to Paul. I guess it'll happen once every thousand years that the church goes a bit off center and affirms something truly illogical, foolish, and idiotic about the gospel. (laughs) That's not church history. Before the age of the apostles was over, Gnosticism or proto-Gnosticism, the early stages of it, had taken root in the churches. That's why John writes 1 John. It was teaching that Jesus is not quite divine and and you get spiritual power and life and light from the angels and all sorts of ceremonies. Then there was Arianism, which came up uh, not long after. Jesus is the first created thing. He's God, but he's God with a little g. He's the first created thing, so he's kind of God. Uh, He's just like God, but he's not of the same essence or the same being. Nestorianism, Apollinarianism, Eutychianism, they all came up in the few, uh, next few centuries. All about the nature of Christ and how the divine and the human nature interrelate and how the Trinity works out. Before long, we had institutionalized sacerdotalism. That is that the Holy Spirit basically lives in the church. And you get some of the grace from God through the sacraments, sacerdotalism. The baptism effects change all the time. Uh, taking the mass does something to your sins all the time. Uh, ex opero operate, they used to say, meaning in the doing of the sacrament, something that the thing is happening to you. It's, it doesn't matter how, whether you come with faith, doesn't matter how much you understood about the Latin that was being read, it got done, you got some grace, go home, your, 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 your ticket has been punched. Very institutional, church-centered, in the building, the priests are between you and God, sacerdotalism. Then as a response to that, we had much of the reactionary monasticism. This was that the guys would go, no, not institutional, not, not smells and bells and gold and necklaces. We're going to go, we're going to go to the mountains. We're, we're going to build monasteries and we will, we will have justification by separation. Look how distinct we are. Look how much we make ourselves suffer. We are paying for our own sins by, by fasting and sleeping on concrete and whipping ourselves and doing all sorts of ridiculously, hopefully atoning things. Then we had the Catholic Church proper coming through the medieval ages where salvation was by baptism. Righteousness came from the saints. Your mediator was Mary. Jesus kind of helped, but you're really lucky you have Mary. Where you do penance and good works and then purgatory finishes off any of the sin that you still have in your life. Then we sort of get to modern day and we have universalism. All roads lead to Rome. It's okay. Any religion is a good religion. Everyone's going to end up in heaven anyway. Uh, open theism is often sort of tucked in with this, that God doesn't know the future. He's, he's growing with us. He's, he's figuring things out as he goes. And, and he, he can't see past the, the blind curtain of free will, so he doesn't force anybody's decisions. And, and open theism and universalism, eventually at the end of, uh, you know, far enough into, into eternity in heaven, every soul will be there. There will be no one in paradise. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? For a pink little fluffy book, not the Bible. Anyway, then after, you know, then we have syncretism these days, either that they sort of blend the different religions or the different teachers and they come and have nice Protestant worship and we've got all of these different kind of religious teachings represented. Or it's not just syncretism in that sense, but syncretism in that any any of those religions get us to heaven. 
Or we have very modern, which, uh, you know, it's kind of like Ecclesiastes. When you start doing church history and heresies, like there's, there's nothing new under the sun. All of these are just the same old heresies that have always been around, just being invented up by some loser with too much time and not enough of the Holy Spirit. We've got things today like in, uh, confusion around atonement, where, yeah, Jesus died for sin, but it wasn't that he was dying under the wrath of God. That's, 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 that's a bit prickly. We don't like that language. Not propitiation, not angry God. That sounds pagan. That's cosmic child abuse. We prefer that Jesus, it's kind of like Narnia, Jesus kind of defeats the wicked witch of the West. I think that's the Wizard of Oz, I don't know. And then, and then you know, he comes back to life and sort of checkmates death and wins for us. And Jesus is the great superhero, but God didn't ever condemn him in our place for our sin. Salvation without justification. Not at all. Or they make faith and faithfulness the same. Do you hear the, the world of difference there? I hope you do. Faith and faithfulness. Faith is your belief. Faithfulness is how committed and how long-term and how, how, how persevering you are in your commitments and good works. You know, well, it sounds the same. They're different. Justification by faithfulness is justification by works. Justification by faith is the good news of the kingdom of Jesus. There's all sorts of confusion. So we, so we look at what Paul says here about this being astonishing, and we say, but it's so common. But some things are so horrendous, so blasphemous, and so terrible that even if you see them every day of your life, they never stop becoming extremely worrying and astonishing. And it's like that when a church turns away from the gospel. So it is right for Paul to say, even he doesn't see the future. He doesn't know all of these heresies that are coming. He probably has an idea after his first mission trip ends up this way. But he doesn't know all of the things that are coming. He says, it's astonishing that you do this. And we just have to say, amen, Paul. We sinners are an astonishing breed. Why we would do that, why we would turn from free grace and ever pollute it is an astonishing matter. Just because it is norm, does not normal, that this happens all the time, does not make it less relevant for us to see as an astonishing event and to fight against. Every age of the church, every age of the church and every generation what must once again defend and hold the ground of the gospel against Satan and all of his attacks. Every generation of like, don't think we had a reformation. We did that. My dad fought the inerrancy battle, and you know, they won the church for the conservative theologians. We're good now. The devil is far too wily. He's already got something at play. He's already got something lined up to shipwreck this church. It is always the case. The church must always be putting oil on the fire of the gospel to keep her burning pure and true. This is what, this is what Luther says. But, well, that's constantly our fight. While it's obvious, the devil's MO is just always... Confuse the gospel. It just confu That's his number one play. Confuse the wisdom and the power and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Even though that's constantly happening to the church, and this astonishment is occurring every generation, yet Luther said this, but this is our comfort. That the devil, with all his limbs, cannot do what he wants to do. He may trouble many, but he cannot overthrow Christ's gospel. The truth may be assailed, but vanquished it cannot be. For the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen, somebody. Amen. The task of the church, the task of the church is always defending and defining, then proclaiming the gospel, then defending it some more, and get out of this mindset that as long as they call it gospel, it's the gospel. Ask for more definitions. Ask more questions, clarify things, because Paul says here in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Of course, these guys are saying it's good news from heaven. It's, there's some gospel here. This is, this, is, this is so gracious of God. This is such good news for sinners. He gives you the opportunity to work out of your sin. Well, it's better news than that he gives no one an opportunity and sends you all to hell. But if you understand the Bible's teaching, they're the same thing. God leaves us all to go to hell and doesn't touch us at all. 
or God lets us work out of our sin, same exact result. The only hope for any salvation is what he says in verse 6. Grace in Christ. Free giving, free grace, free mercy poured out abundantly in Jesus Christ. It's, there, is a, there is an interesting uh, dynamic going on in the book of Galatians. On one hand, we're saying they're deserting the gospel. That's the article by which the church stands or falls. Justification by faith alone. You go to a church and they get, you have lots of differences in preference or opinions, but they're right on the gospel. True church. That's great. You can get some benefit there. You go to a church and they agree with you on 99% of the minutiae and every scintilla of doctrine. And they're just not super clear on justification being by faith alone. You flee because that's a synagogue of Satan and you make sure you tell the pastor you think that before you leave. So here we are. That's our mindset. And yet Paul calls them churches in Galatia. He's going to call them saints. He's going to say that God calls them in Christ. So it's got all this, like, 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 like if he thought that they were so damned, so lost, so gone, they rejected the gospel, why write? I mean, they're damned, right? They're, lost. they're not a church anymore. But, but, but there's a condition here because he's an apostle. And this is early days. The, the, the canon has not been finished yet, right? The, the New Testament scripture is still being written. So, 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 so there's a little bit more grace in this age that is not afforded to people anymore. But it's, it's as if we go, hang on, so back in verse 2, he called them churches. Are they churches? The answer is yes, if they heed this warning. Yes, they are. If they reject the book of Galatians, they are not just a church that went through a confusing season. They're a false church and Paul will have nothing to do with them. He'll warn the other churches about them. If they receive Galatians and heed its warning, they become a true church like any church that had a rocky history. Amen, somebody. All right. You've been around for more than five years around here? You know what I'm talking about. So we're going to keep moving. They deserted the gospel. He's going to give them a chance. He's doing this fatherly, pastoral, loving thing. He's going to give them a chance. He's going to write to them and rebuke them and correct them and explain the theology of the scripture. He's going to shepherd them. That's basically, he's going to pastor them right now as an apostle. But it's a severe warning and it must not be uh, 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 rejected. It says here that he's astonished, first of all, that they're deserting the gospel. Him, not, not just, This comes back to what we said last week. The gospel is so personal. It's about Jesus. Do you see here that he doesn't just say, you are rejecting the dogma that I handed you. He says, you're rejecting him. The thing that is so glorious about the gospel is not that it tells us about God or gets us nearer to God. It brings us Him. It's a personal gospel where God gives self to us through sacrifice. It's amazing. And that means that the tragedy of a church that professes a different gospel is not just deserting a statement of faith. They're deserting Him who called them in grace. The other thing that he's so confused about, so astonished by is that they are doing so, so quickly, which we mentioned before. A couple of months, maybe, a couple of years, max, so quickly. In the life of a church, uh, uh, Luther says, men can build things over centuries that can be torn down overnight. He saw this when, uh, just, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, one of the great old basilicas or cathedrals in Paris was burning down. It took hundreds of years to build. Generations of men carved stones for that, and it was going down quickly. There's a, uh, a tree up in a town called Barcaldon in Australia, and it's, it's known as the place that was the birthplace for the Australian Labor Party. However you feel about that, don't care. But his, it's a historical site, and there's this great big tree there that they memorialized, and it was the, the sort of the, a huge tourist attraction, enormous, growing for all these years, and one night some, maybe a liberal, I don't know, somebody who hated the Labor Party, poured poison on it and killed it overnight. That's what can happen with churches, going so well, growing so healthy, abounding in good works, loving the gospel. Just a couple of months later, somebody's come in, weaseled around, confused some, lied to others, slandered some, and there they are now in the pastorate, steering the ship towards the reef. It can go down very quickly. It's interesting that the phrase here, so quickly, is the same translation, you know, you do some translation, but it's the same phrase 
that is told to us in Exodus chapter 28 when Moses comes back down and yells at the Israelites for worshipping the false god. 40 days, guys. Are you serious? And here's Paul, similar, an apostle of the new covenant, saying, are you kidding me? I've just arrived back home. I'm fighting the, the heretics in Antioch, my sending church, because they're trying to say people need to get circumcised to be saved. Then I get letter that the Galatian churches have fallen for the same trick. These are wily false teachers that need to be dealt with. He says here that they are deserting God, Jesus, and turning to a different gospel. And of course their response would be, no, we're not. This is always the fact and the case of anybody that turns away from the true gospel and affirms and holds fast to a false gospel is that they will tell you, this is just, they, got, they, 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 didn't, they didn't join up for false gospel classes. That's not how this happened. They think they're believing the right doc doctrine. They think they have the gospel. And Paul is saying, your truth is not truth. None of that nonsense. That would come around 2,000 years later. And that's us in postmodernism. He's saying, you think you have the gospel. It's a different gospel. They would say, no, no, no. Paul, that's the thing. These teachers, they were so great. They were kind-hearted. They were lovely. It's not actually a different gospel. It's the same Jesus. Same God, same cross, same work in his life, same Old Testament scriptures. It's great. They didn't change anything. They added one tiny thing, which is just we have to get, that the believing males among us have to get circumcised and then we're in the kingdom. It's only adding one thing. Like we said last week, you tell that to an engineer building the foundations for an enormous a, a, a cathedral or bridge or building, one small additive, just, just a 1% error, uh, too much water in the concrete foundations, it crumbles. You ask a medicine developer or a doctor, you say, I didn't change the medicine at all. I added just a teeny bit of antifreeze because it, it has a sweet taste to the tongue and the children love it. And they will all be dead. The tiniest addition makes... The gospel you're believing, a different gospel. In Acts chapter 26, and we can see why, why Paul is so vehement. This is literally the purpose of his life. He has turned these people to Jesus, and now he's saying they're turning away from God's grace in Jesus. In Acts chapter 26, Paul recounts what Jesus said to him. And Jesus said to him, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So when he hears word about the Galatian churches, he sees what is happening as a great undoing of his life purpose. They are going back from darkness Back to darkness from light. They are going away from God back to the power of Satan. They are going away from the forgiveness of sins and now finding themselves with no place among those who are sanctified. This is the case. This is his urgency. This is his astonishment. Verse 7 says that he's speaking about people among them who are <coughs> distorting the gospel. Not that there is another one, he clarifies. I'm I, I'm speaking, this is a matter of speech. You don't actually have a gospel because gospel means, means good news. There's only one avenue of actual good news, which is that you receive free grace in Jesus for free. Did I mention it's free? Faith alone, do nothing, just receive it. God's finished work. That's the only good news. That's the gospel. You add anything or take away anything from that, it's now no longer good news because it can't save and it will damn. So he said, not that there is another gospel. To be clear, he doesn't want to confuse these very simple Galatians. To be really clear, not a different gospel. For there is, uh, uh, verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Everything that God makes, you read commentaries on the book of Galatians, this common theme comes up. People say, God creates, Satan counterfeits and twists. That's what he's doing. He doesn't come up with a good gospel. The devil has no plays to run. 
He's just, a, he's, he's just a rioter. He's just the revolutionary. He can't build anything, right? He's a 2024 left-wing uni student. He just finds, finds buildings of old great people that built civilization and burn them down, right? Graffiti, those arts. That's, that's all the devil can do. He just finds the good of the Lord and twists it, sometimes ever so slightly, sometimes magnificently twists it. But whatever he can do, he does to lead people away from God's grace in Christ. We've said previously, and I'll just say again, the teaching of the false teachers in Galatia was, Paul is not sent from God, he's sent from Jerusalem, the men. On his way to you, he changed his message because he's a man-pleaser and a coward. And the part of the message that he changed is that he... He's now telling people you don't need to get circumcised to be a child of Abraham. You don't need to get circumcised to receive Christ's blessings, but in fact, you do. He's saying that is a distortion. That is an altering and that is a twisting. And again, you might think, I don't know, if I met a Christian that affirmed the same triune God, the same scriptures, 66 books, the same mode of baptism, the same definition of gender, the same uh, uh, you know, gender roles in the church, what, what else? same eschatology, same Trinitarian theology, same anthropology, same, same, same uh, uh, you know, all these things. This sounds great. We're agreed on like every page of my systematic theology book. We just differ on this tiny thing about the necessity of circumcision. Now, you might think, no, no, I'd, I would tell that person, we belong in different churches and think you're taking a stand. Look what Paul says about them in verse 8, about this tiny little alteration. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. His answer is they're going to hell and have been predestined to have done so since before the foundations of the earth. He's not saying they need to be reconsidered. He's not even saying they're confused. He's saying you need to treat, like we can't see the eternal realities. Maybe this guy repents later. Not even our consideration. I don't even care if the guy's going to repent in 10 years. If he's teaching a false gospel, God wants us to treat him as a child of Satan that is not even savable. Do you have a category for that? Do you understand that this is the way the apostles actually speak? This is how Jesus spoke. The son of perdition, he called Judas. Predestined to betray the son of man, and yet woe to you who will do so. John chapter 5, uh, actually go there. John, uh, 1 John chapter 5. Uh, towards the end of the end of your Bible, First uh, John chapter five. John gives us these categories, which Jude repeats, and which we'll look at in um, Galatians as well. There's different categories, right? I don't want you to go out to your Christian gathering at uni or your your, your ecumenical Bible study tomorrow when somebody says, "Well, you know, we preach this catechism, you just flip tables and crunch skulls, all right, and start going, accursed, damned, unsavable. Well, we, we, I got out of, as a pastor here for the last, going on five years, I've learned I need to say that, okay? I'm proud that I need to say that. I'm really happy that that's the kind of thing I need to temper the people here at Hope Church about. We're fighters. There are categories, right? Not everybody needs the accursed language. So look at First John chapter 5. In 1 John 5, in verse uh, uh, 14, uh, sorry, verse 16, John gives us these, these instructions. He's telling the church who has just gone through a cataclysmic church split because they were, they were splitting over Gnosticism. Some believed Jesus was God. Some believed he was a great angel that came in the flesh and helped us. And eh, maybe we don't get saved by faith alone, etc. Enormous church split. And John says, praise God. All of those who are not even truly of us are now out from us and God orchestrated this church split so that we could get purified and then grow into the future. Hallelujah. That's John's mindset. Because the light, the light is shining, the darkness is running away. That's what's happening. But he says, and you can understand his pastoral heart, but in this situation, here's all these, here's all these Christians going, well, my friend walked away, my uncle was teaching this stuff. 
my friends sort of just gave up on Christianity altogether because it was too confusing. How should I, who should I pray for? How should I pray for all these people? And John says, verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life. That's great. He's saying, if you know a Christian who professes Jesus, knows the true gospel, and they're in sin, they're backsliding, they're struggling, pray for them. Trust that God will bring them back. That should be the, be the automatic assumption of our prayers. I expect God to bring them back to the grace that he called them to in Jesus Christ. If he's a brother, then pray, because if he's a brother, he will come back. That's perseverance of the saints. But he goes on. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. That's his clarifier. I'll explain that language in a sec. Then he says, but there is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. He's not talking about, does all sin deserve hell? That's a yes. Does all sin deserve death? That's a yes. He's talking about, in the community of Christians, uh, this is John's language for saying, there's some sins that you pray for them and expect God brings them back. There are yet other sins that as we see them in play, we are supposed to read them as God telling us this person is not only unsaved, but unsavable. By an apostolic's apostle's authority, we're being told, don't pray for them. Stop thinking you're more loving than Jesus and the apostles. Stop praying for the apostates that slaughter and abuse and rape the church by destroying the gospel and abusing souls. Stop. It's not loving. You know what you're doing? You're annoying God with constantly mentioning the names of those he's already allocated to hell and who are abusing his church. You know what you're doing? You're distracted. You're sentimental instead of missional. You're trying, to, you're trying to follow your feelings about, but, 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 but 1 Corinthians 13, and how might I look if I'm not praying for my enemies? They're not just your enemies. They're God's sworn enemies. Maybe he brings them back, but he wants you to act as if they're unsavable. Now, I'm saying this with that caveat that this is a small sliver of people, not those who differ as to the definition of certain eschatological particulars. Okay, we're saying this again. But there are yet those, there are yet those who if they profess a false gospel, teach that false gospel, and even after being rebuked with apostolic teachings, the New Testament, go on to continue spreading that false gospel, you're being commanded, stop caring for them, stop helping them, stop meeting up with them. Stop doing that. Stop praying for them even. Let them go. Let them run ragged as they serve the devil. You get about those who are still yet out there needing the true gospel. Stop being so sentimental. It's not loving. We see this in Jude as well. If you just flip a couple of pages over into Jude, Jude gives us these different categories. It's like sometimes we think there's just two groups of people, the saved and the unsaved. But the New Testament does give us a few more uh, 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 qualifications for that. It sort of fills out the spectrum a little bit more. There are. That, that is. That, that's true. There will only be two kinds of people eternally. Those in heaven and those in hell. However, in this life, there are different ways that people get there. Some people go to hell because they never even hear the gospel. Some people go to hell because they heard then rejected the gospel. Greater condemnation. Some people go to hell because they became a Christian, walked falsely, rejected their profession, still greater condemnation. Some people go to hell because they fill a pulpit, lie to souls and millions, hundreds, thousands, dozens, who knows, of immortal souls, it doesn't matter how many there are, immortal souls spend eternity in hell because they fed off their poison, still greater condemnation. And the apostles tell us that those guys, once they're identifiable by their doctrine, and they are identifiable by their doctrine because the, the tree is known by its fruit, once they're identified, mark them out, avoid them, stop praying for them, take them off your little mercy ministries, uh, a prayer list, pray for their destruction. The sooner they die, the less people they lead to hell. Jude says it this way, verse 12. These guys are the hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast you with you without fear. 
They're shepherds feeding themselves. They're waterless clouds swept along by winds. They're fruitless trees in late autumn. Twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for ever. So we have different categories. The first category is a backslider. Look at Jude chapter 22. This is similar to uh, uh, 1 John. The the brother committing sin, not leading to death. The guy who's just backsliding, he's committing sin. Neglecting church, tolerating unrepentance in his life. Jude Jude verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Here's Jude giving us this category. These are the guys who are sinning, they're falling back, pray for them. They're doubting. They're they're struggling. The false teachers confuse them. Pray for them and pursue them and sit down with them and talk with them and counsel them and study with them. Pull them back as if if you're just bringing them right back from the edge of a cliff with lava beneath. Snatch them as one out of fire. But there is this category. The next one. Uh, 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 Sorry. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That would, that would be somebody who is, in fact, now out, outside of the church. They're walking faithlessly. But Jude doesn't say they're the guys who are, who are, who are the hidden apostates. He, he's saying these guys are further gone. Have mercy on them. With fear this time. Because every time you sit down with them for Bible study to help them and pray with them, be careful. They're a little bit more calloused to the truth of God. You're just as contagious on each other now, if I can use that language. Because, yeah, you'll seek them. And you know what they'll do? They'll tempt you to, to callous off your conscience too. They'll make you feel like a radical for caring about repentance. They'll make you feel like a crazy for caring about some ancient book and re- believing all these ridiculous myths about Jesus' resurrection. Oh, and you go, this, this might need somebody. Galatians 6, which we'll get to later. This, that, that, that portion says, let those who spiritual deal with those ones and be careful because sin begets more sin. So here's the two categories of Jude here is snatch them back and pray for them, bring them back. Second, some be very careful. And it's not even appropriate that just any old Christian goes after them because some of you may be secretly struggling in ways that we need to not put ourselves in danger. But there is that third category of the accursed that Jude says, you avoid them like a ship avoids a reef. That's what he says. They're reefs in the shallow water. And Christians are like these oblivious, uh, uh, therapeutic, uh, 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 religious folk that keep on taking their wooden ship up to a reef and saying, how can I pray for you, reef? And they sink. Don't pray for them. Stop meeting with them. They teach a false gospel and they don't care about it. I know they cry a lot. They don't have feelings. They're faking it. They're abusing people. They have a great healing ministry, it might be. They may have all of these other things going for them. Jude is telling us with an x-ray vision, it's fake, it's false, it's fatal. Stay back. Or in the language of Galatians, we, we could think of the, the, again, we've gone, the backslider, the apostate, would be the next one that we talk about. So you've got the backslider. Then there's the, the apostate who just leaves the faith. They're not really a danger to many people. They're not trying to evangelize. They just ditch. That's sad. Pray for them. Maybe God brings them back. But then there's also the person who's under church discipline. That's another category. That's somebody who, because of their unrepentant sin, the church pursues them. They won't repent. We, we, get, we say, we just can't have you taking communion with us and staying on the membership and representing us to the world, representing Jesus to the world while you're living in this sinful relationship or in this sinful, unethical uh, job or whatever you do. We need to remove your membership here, buy you from the table to tell the world and you, you're acting like a Christian. We may as well treat you like, sorry, you're acting like a non-Christian. We may as well treat you like a non-Christian. Now you've got a few categories. You've got uh, a backslider. You've got an apostate. Now you've got somebody under church discipline. And yet still, the accursed is none of those. The accursed is not under church discipline. They're not just under church discipline so that they repent and come back. The accursed, Paul is saying, he's telling us that from God's perspective, they were sent among you to test you, 
cut them off. This is not church discipline. This is church banishment. They are going to hell and there's nothing you can do about it. And I don't profess to have a list somewhere that we know which one of these guys are. We're careful with that judgment. But really, when people, people kind of come up and go, well, well, how do you know and who are these guys? You go, the point is that you're already obsessing about them too much. Preach the gospel, disciple those who are believers, focus on the work of the church and those who preach a false gospel, give them the flick. Just leave them alone. Stop caring. They are accursed. They are cut off. This word accursed is, is like an Old Testament word. Maybe, you're, maybe you've got a New King, New King James and it's got um, anathema. I think uh, KJV still has. Anathema, this old, old Testament language of something that is detestable, hated by God, to be cast out and devoted to destruction. <coughs> That's what accursed means. In the Old Testament, accursed things were killed. A city that tolerated idolatry would be razed to the ground, burned, everybody killed. An idolater would be accursed, anathema, and killed. Well, in the New Testament, we don't have capital punishment, though God may do as he wills. We have church discipline. We vote, we put them out, we don't hear from them again. Paul's telling the guys, obviously, this is your mode of action. Not let them make their case, treat them with patience. It's, you know, sometimes you say things as a preacher and you muddle things up. No, none of that. Get rid of them. He doesn't depend any of this either on their behavior, their, uh, their character, or even their ministry. Look, look back at verse 7. Uh, sorry, verse 8. He uses this ridiculous hy- hy- hypothetical to make a point. Still true, it's just hypothetical. He's saying, if I come back and preach a different gospel, consider me as ex-apostle Paul. If Michael the archangel comes and tells you another gospel, it's not Michael the archangel, it's now Michael the fallen angel. There is no such thing as credential or, 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 or ministry or authority that gets to trump the apostle's authority as it was first revealed in the first century through the texts of the New Testament. See, so that's this crazy idea, but then in verse 9, it actually brings it back down to the actual situation. He goes, but it wasn't Michael, was it? It wasn't an angel. It wasn't me. It was these men. So verse 9, he makes it more applicable. But as I've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's two accurses in just two sentences. He really, really means this. There is no room for being able to say, but he's got credentials. He's supported by a legit church. This parachurch ministry has done lots of good in the past. I'm sure they've sent us a good guy. He's supported by some seriously good preachers. He's worked miracles. Can I, t- I, 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 would, I literally lost count of how many people told me at some point that I was trying to counsel people away from the destructive heresy of a, of a false teacher that was within the backyard of this church. And they just kept saying, but when I was with him, I, I felt a warmth come over me. Take a spa. <laughs> what is that? But, but you know, he, he healed my leg. Uh, the, the, Lord, the Lord actually revealed to me that I was going to receive healing through him, and then it happened. You know, that's awesome. That sounds exactly like 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul says that just as Satan can do fake miracles and always dresses up in a white suit and tie, just as Satan always appears as an angel of light, it is no wonder then that his ministers also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Of course there's going to be some bait on the hook. We're not that dumb. The credentials don't matter. The data of the message matters. Oh, but he's got great character. That's the other thing. He he says, if me or an angel, the most holy things in existence, the Apostle Paul or an angel from heaven, because even character and holiness doesn't doesn't at all qualify their need for a preciseness on their gospel doctrine. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, you know, it's a, <coughs> there's, there's a, 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 an allowance if he's so godly. He's just so kind and gentle, Paul. Good, he'll be easy to throw out. That's why we get big deacons. 
Oh, but he's so holy. Oh, he calls out the sins of the church. You know, he's, he's one of those reformers. You know who else calls out the sins? I, I literally hear this one every now and then. I don't know. He's, he's really got his finger on the pulse, calling out the sins of the church. So does Satan. Literally his name, the accuser of the church. That, not, not a great argument. No, let them be accursed. There is no amount of niceness, character, holiness, ministry record, or miracles in his path that get to condition this. If their gospel doctrine is off, they are committed to it, they are proclaiming it, they are defending it, they are to be considered by the church as accursed. They're damned. They are sealed just as Satan and his demons themselves into an irredeemable fate in hell. Treat them like they are. Give them no special grace. Of course, if they're dying next to you, you help them out of the fire. Leviticus tells us if they get a flat tire, you help them with the flat tire. But not because you consider them with any kind of sensitivity or sentimentality as a brother. They want to be considered as an exception to the member's statement of faith. No. They want to have a chance to defend themselves during a member's meeting. No. They want additional pastoral meetings to just keep on seeing how their heresy is really that dangerous. No. Cut off, sent out, without apology. Martin Luther recounts this uh, German saying. It is this. In God's name beginneth all mischief. Everybody starts mischief by claiming it's in God's name. Every tyrant that has ever slaughtered millions of their own people and started wars, got into office by promising a, a rescue of some other kind of horror. They had good intentions and they slaughtered millions. It's not the sentiment, the kindness of the preacher. It is the message of the preacher. I say this as one who sits squarely under the authority of Scripture. As the eldership here in any true church, we sit under scripture and everything I just said, apply it to me in every sermon ever preached on this pulpit. There is no, there is no wiggle room with gospel. It is, I, I just keep on saying it because it is just so frustrating how often that wiggle room is asked for. You know what's even just as annoying? When pastors just keep on asking for wiggle room to not preach the gospel. They make you feel bad. You need the gospel every sermon? Wow. They gaslight you. Oh, you must be pretty sinful. Well, you forget it. How's your memory? I told you the gospel last Easter. Like every single sermon. Because this is our nature. This is our tendency. This is our end and our result if we don't do this. The preaching of the gospel. I started Galatians and somebody asked me, like, is there a heresy around in church I should be aware of? Yeah. No, except for that problematic thinking, which is we don't need Galatians except for when we're on the rocks. The book of Galatians, the preaching of the gospel, the clarifying it, the defending it, the decrying of heretics is what keeps the ship straight. So let's remember before we close to recount the gospel. Every one of us sinners deserving condemnation. That condemnation is not divined by our feelings or our lack of opportunity or our misfortune. It is defined by God's perfect law, the standard of righteousness and goodness. We're born already failing it because our representative Adam failed it for us. Then every day in our life, we continually fall beneath its demands so that Romans 2 says our whole life is piling with every sin another handful of God's wrath onto the pile. We're digging our own grave with every single sinful thought, speech, act. We're digging our grave and on the day of judgment, that truck opens its tray and the entirety of God's wrath buries us. And we are sustained by God's power to remain under wrath for eternity. And there's just no hope except that God came into our experience and life and nature and took 
an untellable amount of, 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 of masses of wrath for an untold amount of humanity and absorbed all of that wrath in himself in that act on the cross of Calvary, resurrected three days later to prove his victory over death, to prove his acceptance by the Father, to prove his divine status and the truthfulness of every word he ever spoke, and then says to all humanity, you get my infinite life source. You get my eternal life, my unending life with the Father. You get that. You get an absolute freedom, forgiveness, and ablation of all sins. You get a complete absolution and a confidence that you never have to pay or experience an ounce of God's anger, wrath, or punishment. And all you must do is believe the gospel as it's being presented to you right now. Do nothing, act nothing, accomplish nothing. Receive a free gift, swallow it into your soul, and believe Jesus is my righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for an apostle like Paul who is willing to fight for it. Thank you for the, the letter of Galatians that you, you orchestrated in history, that this would happen to the Galatian churches, that they would be confused. They would get so close to falling off the precipice of this gospel-denying heresy, but by your grace and your mercy, by the working of your spirit, you sent an apostle's letter to redeem them back. We thank you for doing that. We thank you, Lord God, that this is also the case of every true church, that we will expect constant assailings against the gospel, constant attacks against the church, constant distractions for the church to lead us towards those reefs that destroy the ship. God, we thank you that your sovereignty and your spirit and your grace and the merits of Jesus Christ continue to stand to preserve us and protect us and keep us on the straight and narrow, though wild the storms may be. So I pray for this church, Lord God. I pray for this pulpit that into the decades yet to come, into the centuries yet to come, another 263 years yet into the future when they look back on this day as old history and we're all dead and we're we're all forgotten yet would the gospel still through hope and their descendants be proclaimed, held, defended and proclaimed some more. Father God, we pray that the gospel would remain pure in our church and in our midst and in our studies and in our hearts. And would, Lord, you give tonight faith for the first time to those who still sit in darkness, that they might see the light of Jesus Christ and turn from the power of Satan to God to have the forgiveness of sins that are only in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.